What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Cat Brooks. Mainstream media's one-sided narrative is doing little more than fueling an unfolding genocide in Gaza. As one of our guests today told us last week, it hasn't happened yet, and it is our voices, bodies, and actions that can help stop it. To that end, we are joined this morning by Curry Peterson-Smith, Michael Ratner, Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he researches U.S. empire, borders, and migration. Curry, thank you for those words last week and for joining us this morning. Thank you. So glad to be here, Kat. Before I start, I just wanted to say that the mission of Law and Disorder is to expose, agitate, and build. The experiment we are working with here is how a radio show created by two radical lefties can be an actual partner in movement. I'm saying that because I want these segments to not just regurgitate what we may see in other left-wing media or, you know, um, on some of our social platforms where our algorithms are blocking out the nonsense but uplifting the voices uh, to demand an end of the siege on Gaza. Um, I want this show to be an opportunity to have hard conversations, unpack regional dynamics, and incite people into action. So I'm thrilled to have you on the show, Curry, um, and I'm hoping that you're going to be one of our guests that comes back regularly until we win, and then, of course, come back to celebrate. Curry, I want to recap some of the more recent events that has have taken place over the last few days and get your reactions to them. The last time we spoke, we ended, we ended saying... Um, you ended the saying about how we the people with our voices and actions have the ability to perhaps prevent the genocide Israel has said it's going to commit. Since that time, in just a week, we have seen a hospital bombed, hundreds of doctors, nurses, patients killed, thousands of Gazans murdered as they tried to follow Israel's order to evacuate. Um, and this morning, we saw a continuation of the airstrikes raining down on Gaza. Um, your thoughts about where we are now and what has shifted since we chatted last week in terms of the siege? Well, that's an important question. I mean, on one hand, one has to start with the utter catastrophe. I mean, at this point, more than 5,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza, um, you know, two more than 2,000 of whom are children. Uh, my understanding from just the Palestinian folks in my life and Palestinian activists I'm working with who have friends and family in Gaza is that last night was actually some of the most intense bombardment since the start of this, uh, this whole situation. So truly devastating. Um, yes, we know that Israel, um, has bombed a hospital. We know that, uh, various hospitals have been warned to evacuate, including, the Ahli uh, hospital that was bombed, um, was warned beforehand and then bombed. So it's really devastating. And it is also the case that people around the world and in this country have gone into motion in terms of demanding an end to this latest round of carnage and calling for a ceasefire. So this past weekend saw protests in major cities across this country and small cities. Uh, and last week saw protests around the world, including in places like Yemen, and Egypt and Iraq, um, you know, throughout the Middle East and in North Africa. Uh, there was a massive demonstration in London over the weekend as well. So those those protests, you know, we can't say that they are yet the factor. 
you know, in terms of why Israel has not launched its ground invasion, which it has been preparing. But we want it to be a factor. And we see it, we see these protests becoming uh, a factor in this whole situation. And that is extremely important because it's evident that the United States, for example, is not interested in uh, holding its ally Israel to following international law or anything like that. So it really has to be a uh, popular power. Curry, in the, the conversations you're having with Palestinian activists that you are close to, um, what, what are they saying to you about their concerns about their families? Um, I did an interview with a reporter about a local reporter about something completely different, and he's married to a Palestinian American, and she lost forty members of her family in one day. Right. I mean, you know, it's the the kind of look like loss is difficult, right? Um, but the kinds of losses that folks in Gaza are dealing with and folks connected to people in Gaza are dealing with and the scale of those losses are really difficult to take in. I mean, I have a dear friend who, you know, her family, they, the entire family in Gaza, everybody was lost except for an 18 month old baby. And the question now is, what happens to that baby? You know, will she come live in the United States with this family here? Will she stay in Gaza and be raised by folks there? You know, these are the kinds of decisions that people are are having to make. So, yeah, it's really it's just an incredible level of violence. And I think about it in terms of the scale of what Israel is trying to do. I think of points of reference like 1967, you know, or 1982, uh, you know, invasion of Lebanon. I mean, these were these were times when Israel was trying to change the lines on the map and appreciating the level of violence that it that's required to change the lines on the map. I mean, that's what families in Gaza and families all around the world, you know, on the outside who are connected to those in Gaza are dealing with that level of violence and these kind of unreal decisions to make all while the bombs are still dropping. You know, there's not even really a minute to, to really pause and um, appreciate the losses because the siege continues without water, without food, without, you know, reliable access to electricity or internet. Yeah, I want to talk about the aid angle a little bit, but we are very grateful that Zara Ballou, the executive director of the Bay Area Chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, San Francisco Bay Area Chapter, has joined us. Good morning, Zara. Good morning. Good morning. Zara, um, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I'm Listeners, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because I want Zara's take on this. Zara, also on the line with you is Curry Peterson. Um, Smith, uh, Michael Rentner, Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, and I had Curry on last week, and one of the things that Curry said to me was, you know, because I, I, I asked about, like, we are watching a genocide unfold before our eyes. 
what are we to do? And Curry's response was, it hasn't happened yet. It is up to us, our voices, our actions, right? Putting our bodies on the line to stop this from happening. And what I, I lifted that up and then I said, I asked him, I said, um, since the time we spoke last week, we've seen, you know, the hospital bombed. We've seen thousands of Gazans murdered, Palestinians murdered as they tried to follow Israel's order to evacuate. And this morning, we saw a continuation of the airstrikes rain down on Gaza. Zara, your take on the escalation by Israel over the last seven days? It's horrifying. I, I rewind back to two weeks ago when it first started and it has worsened day by day. I was on Twitter a little while ago reading um, Palestinians from Gaza posting that last night may have been the worst night of bombing that they have seen. Um, and this is in addition to, by the way, bombing um, the border with Syria, bombing in, um, in the West Bank. And day by day, more and more people are losing their, are not losing their lives. More and more people are having their lives taken from them. Families are being obliterated. Entire bloodlines are being wiped yeah. off the map. Um, it is horrifying that it is happening. And then watching it as an American taxpayer and seeing um, the way our government, our popular culture, our sports teams have been rallying behind it is mm. even is, is sickening. Yeah, and we're going to get to culture, too, and what, what the war on culture that is also being waged um, as an additional arm of oppression in this moment. Um, Curry had brought up aid, and in the news headlines anyway, it, it is mainstream media is crediting um, is being credited for pushing Israel to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. Uh, Zara, you first, and then we'll go to Curry. Your understanding about if and what type of aid is getting in, and is it anywhere near enough? I know the answer to that, but answer it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, the aid was, one, held at the border for many, many days. Two is a fraction of what is needed, and three is at best a Band-Aid on a hemorrhaging region, um, bringing in food and limited medical supplies while continuing to allow Israel to bomb Gaza makes no sense. Like, how are you going to feed them if you're killing their babies? Um, it's, it's just like, oh, look, we did something nice as we're on the precipice of an ethnic cleansing. It makes no sense, and nobody deserves any credit for it. Right on. Agreed. Curry, expanding on that just a little bit, one of the countries um, that has sent in aid is India. We touched briefly on uh, India last time. I was sort of surprised that that was one of the countries that was sending in aid. Can you talk a little bit more about where India sits here and why does where they sit matter? Yeah, well, India has, um, I mean, historically in many years past uh been more indian governments have been more sympathetic to um to palestinians but that is uh severely reversed and actually the current modi government in india which is itself you know a virulently fascist uh regime that is carrying out its own horrendous acts particularly against Muslim folks in India, as well as indigenous folks of India, as well as in this occupation of Kashmir, has been adamantly pro-Israel um, in, in recent years. And so at the moment, Modi is absolutely 
towing the line of Israel having the right to self-defense. And I think that, you know, really flowing from what Zara just said, it's, it, says, it says something about the politics of aid that, um, you know, government officials, allies can on one hand enthusiastically support the kind of killing that uh, that Israel is carrying out in Gaza and uh, against Palestinians and then say, oh, but we've contributed some aid also. I mean, it's, it's the kind of it's the most meager um, uh, effort to uh, to I, I don't even know what it does. I mean, I, I I guess I mean at least in this in this country, I do think that it is in in a way a response to the outcry that that we have made uh, for Palestinian lives. And um, you know, I we have seen rhetorically some changes from Biden administration officials um, in the latter part of last week, saying, well, you know, we do hope that Israel respects international law and human rights and, and all of that, while, of course, they're sending uh, weapons. But it's really it's 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 really offensive, frankly, um, to uh, offer meager aid. I mean, as, as Zara pointed out, I mean, this is this is like, um, you know, a few dozen trucks of of uh, of of aid um, to offer that while cheering on, you know, uh, a genocidal offensive is itself uh, really really uh, astounding and offensive. Yeah, and and Curry and, and Zara for a little way in here too. We talked about Biden last week as well. I've noticed the shift. I've also noticed right more and more vocal um, outcry from like hardline Democrats even saying, I will not vote for Biden because of his support of Israel. And I'm wondering if that is right, you know, that this is not a time where where um, he can afford to be losing traditional support. Um, I, I, so I'm wondering if, if the cage is rattled a little bit and, and, and that's what he's responding to, right? Um, because we are barreling towards 2024 presidential elections. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Biden, I mean, Biden's in this interesting position because, and we talked about this last week as well, Kat, like with the war in Ukraine, Biden has gotten to kind of play a wartime president while not sacrificing any American lives um, and, you know, getting to um, see record profits for U.S. weapons manufacturers, which, you know, and, and to be clear, my saying that is not, that's not a commentary on, um, you know, the invasion of Ukraine, which I, which I denounce as this aggressive act, but the U.S.'s position um, really is about kind of strengthening U.S. power, making sure that Russia's weakened, et cetera, et cetera. And so, the, I, you know, there is a logic in this situation, and Biden has spelled out that logic when he, I mean, he went to Tel Aviv and then he came back and gave a address from the Oval Office who said, and, and he said, this is the same fight, you know, what we have been doing in terms of arming NATO and what we are doing in terms of arming Israel is actually the same fight. And so I, I do think that they're trying to tap into um, a kind of, um, I don't know, a, a, a militaristic sentiment that is about shoring up the notion of 
so-called American leadership in the world. But I do think that there has been there's, there's been a number of miscalculations here. Um, and the fact is, while Israel is is raining down catastrophe on Gaza um, and is killing Palestinians in the West Bank uh, as well and is attacking you know Lebanon as well, the fact that actually Israel is is kind of moving on all these fronts speaks to the to, to the Israel's not fully in control here actually. Um, there has been a conversation in the White House, um, in the State Department, that is now kind of making it to the New York Times and elsewhere, where American officials are now saying saying to Israeli officials, I don't know about this ground invasion, actually. You know, this might be more trouble than it's worth. Um, and so if, if Biden thought that this would be kind of an easy way to rally, you know, the country behind Israel and kind of rally behind himself as this this sort of defender of democracy in the world stage. It's not shaping up that way, particularly as people in the administration are are raising their own questions. I mean, I think we talked about this last time. Somebody from the State Department resigned uh, actually um, because of these policies, and this is this is not a this is not a progressive person. This is somebody whose job it was to oversee U.S. arms transfers. And he said, this is too much killing of Palestinian children for me. I have to resign. That does not look good mm. for the Biden administration and the U.S. government. Zara, my friend, this may be a clumsily worded question, so forgive me in advance. Um, there are pieces of this conversation that I would only hold with certain folks, and you, of course, are one of them. I'm watching, um, and I too am trying to figure out what the right container is to hold a conversation about who and what Hamas is, and how they do or do not differ from the Palestinian freedom fighters. And I'm asking the question because I'm watching the left struggle with the actions of Hamas while also trying to not both sides the issue. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the proper container. Oh, God, that's a really good question. I'm not offended. I think you're touching on something really key. I have lost count of how many times my colleagues and I have been asked to condemn Hamas. And so I appreciate that that's not where you're coming from on this. The way we've been thinking about it in our work is that at the core, the conversation needs to be about the root of the violence. And the violence didn't begin on October 7th. It began at the foundation of the state of Israel when Palestinians were originally forcibly moved from their homes, removed from their homes and locked out forever. It continued, of course, with many, many years of apartheid, the siege on Gaza and so on. Um, the resistance in Palestine predates Hamas um, and will continue past any attempt at obliteration of Hamas. Hamas is a reaction to what Palestinians have experienced. At the same time, um, Hamas was democratically elected more than 15 years ago, the last election Palestinians were permitted to have. And so when we have been asked to condemn Hamas, our pivot has been that first and foremost, we condemn the state of Israel as the root of the violence. Beyond that, you know, what's been really hard is if two and a half weeks ago, like on October 6th, you said, not you, because you wouldn't say this, but if somebody said to me, you know, 
we condemn Israel and we condemn Hamas, I would have said, look, it's not a both sides issue. One is an occupier and one is an occupied. One is a nuclear power and the other is an armed group of resistors, both of whom have engaged in violence, but the power dynamics do not lend themselves to a both sides statement. At this point, what we've seen is so much one-sidedness that I have found myself um, begrudgingly um, appreciating when people ask for both condemnations or make both condemnations and equate what is happening. Uh, settler colonizers are not the same as the colonized and nuclear powers, which nuclear powers are not the same as, as freedom fighters. We condemn the loss of all life. We condemn the, the taking of all life. We condemn the targeting of all civilians. But this isn't about Israel versus Hamas. This is about Israel as an apartheid state that is blaming two million people for what their chosen or unchosen resistance fighters did. Of that two million, close to 50% of the population are children, which means they weren't even alive. And if they were, they were too young to vote when Hamas was elected. What Israel is doing is, is bigger than that. And they will continue to say that they are trying to wipe out Hamas, but we have seen them killing babies, bombing hospitals, killing journalists, bombing churches, and the list goes on. Um, it's a talking point for them and one that we have intentionally refused to submit to. Curry, I'm going to bring you in in just a second, but because, Zara, you segued into the next sort of clumsily worded question. Um, so thank you. Um, I, I am so beyond exhausted listening to Zionists and, and others, right? It's not just Zionists, um, others brainwashed by the false narrative of what has happened in Palestine over the last seven and a half decades. And this trope that if you support Palestine, you support the deaths of civilians. I am clear that none of us on this call and most people, I believe, despite their politics, don't want to see anyone die, especially women and children, regardless of where they live. Um, I think you just did this, Zara, but like, if you maybe tug a little bit more on that thread about how you are talking about civilians that have been killed in Israel. We say often that white supremacy also hurts white people, colonization hurts even the colonizers, because there can be no peace under violent systems of oppression for anyone. The root of the violence that we are seeing today is Israeli apartheid. The very systems that the Israeli government has built put Israelis in danger. The fact that every Israeli is required to participate in the army complicates the question of who is a civilian and who is not to their own detriment. But continuing to steal land, water, food, and subject another people to violence puts themselves in the way of violence. There cannot be peace without justice. And that's what we're seeing right now is because Israel has refused, right, refused to acknowledge even arguably the equal existence of Palestinians and has suppressed them in this horrific way for so long. The unfortunate consequence for Israelis is that they too are in harm's way. That's right. Curry, um, I can I, I can recap if you need me to, but I'd love for you to hit those two points as well. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with Zara here. And, uh, you know, 
I think too that we have to. I mean, let me let me say explicitly. Yes, of course, all life is sacred, and um, you know, I don't. We don't want the killing of of any civilians, and um, there are certain basic uh, critical questions that one must ask um, and critical histories that one must point to um, that we're seeing so little of, really not seeing it at all in the mainstream media in the U.S. So, for example, you know, one must consider the fact that there have been numerous, I mean, really countless ways that Palestinians have um, have resisted Israeli apartheid, um, the overwhelming majority of which were or were nonviolent ways. I mean, one must talk about something that has I've, I've hadn't heard much spoken at all about in the mainstream media, which is the Great March of Return. This is a mass, overwhelmingly nonviolent um, protest campaign in 2018, in which every week for months. 20 to 40,000 people in Gaza would march to the border fence uh, with Israel. These are people, you know, the majority of Gaza's population are themselves refugees and um, descendants of refugees uh, displaced to Gaza when Israel uh, established itself through violence in 1948. And so these were people marching in the direction of home. And how was this nonviolent series of marches over months not organized by Hamas? How was it greeted by the Israelis? Israeli snipers shot people and uh, had an explicit policy of shooting people in the legs to permanently disable them. Um, we have seen Palestinian journalists like Shirin Abu Akleh, but dozens of others in recent years killed uh, journalism not a not a, a violent act. We have seen Palestinian poets jailed for writing poetry. We have seen, of course, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which is a campaign that is led by Palestinian civil society, that is conducted by Palestinians and by their supporters all around the world, which is an explicitly nonviolent campaign, criminalized, targeted by the Israeli state, and also criminalized by the French Supreme Court, as well as dozens of states across the United States. So when you have such brutality against a Palestinian population for over, you know, eight decades, and when you've got such concentrated cruelty against Gaza in particular, where people have not been allowed to come or go for 16 years, where the the Israelis control the food that goes in such that the caloric intake of Gazan people is controlled by Israel and is declared by the United Nations to be insufficient, to be dangerously insufficient, uh, when Israel can, can cut off the electricity at will, as they do, and when they bomb intermittently, and when every other uh, approach to resistance, to nonviolent resistance, has been eliminated, what does one expect, you know? Um, and if Hamas wasn't carrying out armed resistance, there would be some some other force would emerge because that is what happens 
when every other path to redress these horrendous grievances is eliminated. The last thing is, I, I, you know, again, flowing from what Zara said, one must look about, look at, and again, this is not being discussed in the U.S. mainstream media, some basic history. I mean, Hamas is for, was formed in 1987. Israel's been occupying Gaza since 1967, right? Um, this past week, Israel bombed the West Bank. Israel has killed over 90 Palestinians in the West Bank also in the past uh, two weeks. Um, and that has nothing to do with Hamas. So, so the notion that this can all be pinned on Hamas or the October 7th attacks, it's simply not true. To, to y'all's point about, and I'm watching the clock tick, and I have so many things I want to ask you um, next Monday, next Monday. Uh, to your point about like how old people were, or if they were even on the planet um, when Hamas was elected, something that I didn't know before, um, you know, we started this series of conversations about Palestine is that the median age for folks in Palestine is 19.6 years old, and you compare that to the median age of Americans, which is about 40 years old. Mm. Um. I don't know if either of you have anything to say about that. I mean, I think I know the why, right? Um, but I just, I had to sit with that, that that is the median age of who is experiencing what is happening um, right now. Zara, last week, uh, Curry and I talked about, you know, the, the massive protests that we're seeing. Um, you've long been an outspoken um, voice for Palestinian liberation and attacked for it. I was actually going to start the interview with with our story, but we'll do we'll save that for another conversation. Unprecedented numbers across the world for Palestine, tens of thousands of people. But this kind of pouring out support was not a thing just a decade ago. From your vantage point, what has shifted? What was the movement able to accomplish over the last 10 years when the cameras are off, because that's when the real work happens, the organizing, mm -hmm. that has made this moment possible? <sighs> um, I'll add as a quick tangential point. I was just in Bosnia a few days ago, and knowing that there was a genocide that happened there in my lifetime, um, is something that I know is informing a lot of people in this moment, which is that we can actually see up close, right, in our faces, in our Twitter feeds, on our Facebook, what we didn't see in the 90s, but we know now happened. Hmm. The mobilization right now, I would suggest, is, if anything, a response to the heavy-handed, perpetuation of pro-Israel propaganda that's been unleashed on us in the last several weeks. In the work that we do at CARE, some of us are comparing this moment for our community to the post 9-11 moment in terms of the fear, harassment, and violence that Arabs and Muslims are facing. And so what's happened and what has continued to happen is so much solidarity work, right? The movement for Black Lives, um, 18 million rising, numerous Latinx immigration groups have spent many years building relationships with people who are Palestinian or doing Palestinian solidarity work. Um, CCR and Dream Defenders took activists to Palestine to see for themselves the intersectional nature of what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border, what's happening with policing in the United States, and then what's happening um, in Israel and Palestine. And that kind of work has 
happened for so long that in this moment, there it is more than Arabs and Muslims who are recoiling as the proliferation of pro-Israel propaganda. I would suggest that the, pro, the pro-Israel propaganda is a function of them feeling the pressure and knowing. You don't need to lie and cheat if you're winning, and they're not winning when it comes to hearts and minds, but they're mobilizing a lot of resources. And so this is the response is we can't afford ads in Times Square, and we can't buy full pages in the New York Times, and we don't have that many politicians um, in relationship, but what we have are grassroots relationships. And the people need to keep coming out in the thousands, and those numbers need to keep growing. Um, and to go to a point that you made earlier, and Biden and the other Democrats need to feel the pressure that they will lose um, the Muslim vote in swing states where they need it most if they don't change course ASAP. Muslim vote, the black Muslim vote, the black vote, I think are definitely mm-hmm. on the line. Mm-hmm. I, I'm glad that you lifted up, right, the the work that's been happening over the last few years. Yesterday at the um, Black Panther Party uh, event put on by Mama Frederica Newton and uh, Dr. P. Huey Newton Research um, Center, I, I was talking about how when we were in the streets, right, folks know about the, the, the communication between Palestinian freedom fighters and the Ferguson freedom fighters. That started in 2009 when we were in the streets around Oscar, mm-hmm. right? This, this yeah. connecting, the support, the solidarity work um, between um, black freedom fighters here um, and Palestinians. So the, the history is long, and, and I agree. I think that's part of why uh, the organizing has been deep, and, and I think that's part of why we're seeing what we're seeing, and I, I imagine that we're going to see both of it, more of it. Excuse me. We are also seeing... However, in response to the protest, uh, Curry, European governments like France and London literally banning protests that are in support of Palestine. And even here in the United States, law enforcement harassing protesters. I saw a Twitter post from an activist I work with fairly closely in Tennessee saying she was in an action and a cop came up to her and said, quote unquote, you know, I know you, right? Mm. Uh, end quote. Her response was and and some expletives. But... Um, <laughs> But this idea that London is London is 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 banning Palestinian protests. I'm not as surprised in France. I mean, we've seen them ban protests around police violence, right? Like it, within the last couple of months, um, that seems to be their new mode of operation. If they don't want to hear it, they just make it illegal. But Curry, your response to that and and the the dangers of of, of government saying free speech actually ain't a thing. Right. Exactly. I mean, first of all, one has to just point out the the um hypocrisy i mean the idea that I mean, what biden said the other night which is that the u.s is supporting israel because it supports democracy against um you know forces that seek to end it and then all of these all of these governments are them are repressing their own residents who are going in the streets non-violently protesting right uh and and organizing um, you know, just if there was ever any doubt that this has anything to do with democracy, uh, Israel makes it very clear that that's not the case. But then the U.S. and France and uh, the U.K. and I'll put Germany in the mix as well um, are also making it very clear that this has nothing to do with democracy. But I think, too, that it really it is, um, you know, in a backhanded way, it is a testament, actually, of the power of these protests. I mean, if they were not 
if they were not worried, you know, about what these protests represent, then they wouldn't have to be so repressive. And if the, you know, the case for Israel itself was was compelling enough to uh, simply uh, be made in the form of dialogue, then they would do that. But it, it's it's not compelling. And so it's it's been interesting. I think this is just following from what Zara said, like recent years have seen actually, I, I think, less engagement in terms of uh, kind of discursive conversation by Israel supporters, um, certainly in the United States, I can't speak to Europe, but certainly here, when there are, um, when Students for Justice in Palestine does events um, on campus, you know, and other pro-Palestine events happen, it is less likely that Zionists show up and kind of um, engage and more likely that they'll simply try to cancel the event, right? Or that professors, they'll try to get professors fired or students expelled. That is, it's less about conversation and more about leaning on institutional power. And we're seeing that in a very dramatic way in the past 15 days with governments across the world repressing uh, protest, uh, saying this, this simply is not allowed to happen. Again, I think that they're very worried about what these protests represent, not only because the question of Palestine is so powerful um, uh, on the world stage, but it, it is powerful because Israel represents a whole kind of nexus of relationships, an embodiment of a certain world order where might make right, where nuclear weapons um, and bullying and occupation and intermittent bombing is the way that, uh, you know, so-called politics are done. And that is the way of the world that the United States, of course, is putting forward, as well as all of those governments that we just named, the UK and Germany and France. And so all of that, I mean, the, the, the apple cart gets upset when we go in the streets and say, wait a minute, these people are bombing children and hospitals and mosques and churches. It just it upends the whole thing, and that's why they are so afraid, and that's why they are using this repression. But it's not going. It's not going to work. Zara, sixty seconds for your final thoughts. I have enough questions for a whole other interview, so y'all definitely have to come back. Zara, sixty seconds. Your final thoughts, please. There are children dying by the minute in Gaza. There are entire bloodlines being wiped out. When we look back at history and we ask ourselves, what would we have done if we were there? How would we have objected? What sacrifices would we have made? This is that moment. The Palestinians are a beautiful and resilient people. I know that they will have victory with or without us. The question that I pose for myself every day and for your listeners is what am I going to do about it? What will be the story that I tell my children and my grandchildren about the genocide that happened in my lifetime? Could I have stopped it? I want to know that I was a part of the solution. And so we will keep fighting in all of the ways that are at our disposal as Americans. Yes, we will. Thank you both so much for joining me this morning. I deeply appreciate the both of you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. 
That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>